You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm Lou Rosenfeld. My guest today is Emily Danielson, a UX researcher who's going to be speaking at a certain conference that's taking place June 6th through 8th called Design at Scale. Hello, Emily. Hi, how's it going? It's going great. Glad to have you on the show. Um, I really wanted to talk with Emily because the name of her presentation at Design at Scale is like one of the best. And, you know, we do a bunch of conferences, been doing this for a long time, but this one really stood out for me. It's this. I mean, I can lift a shovel, colon, design skills and disaster response. And, um, what a, you know, one of the things that's just so much fun is to think about design and its intersections with all kinds of areas that we haven't really intersected it with before. Like just earlier today, I was talking with uh, Rachel Dekas, who's actually spoken at, a, at our conferences before, and she's been on the podcast. And, and we were really talking about her intersection of design and social work, which is fascinating. Now, you're doing the intersection of design and disaster. Well, talk about that. How, how, did, how did you come to be an expert in that, that interesting intersection? Yeah, I, man, I feel like it's an expert because of experience, right? I, I live in the Southern U.S. and we are exposed to disasters constantly, right? There's always hurricanes, there's always tornadoes, there's always floods, our power is always going out. And as a design professional, I'm watching these systems of response at play and thinking like, oh man, these are, these, there's plenty of room for improvement here. And so it's sort of a, a natural intersection for me as I'm experiencing this and watching my community go through this, I'm pulling in resources that I have a, as a design professional to try and, I don't know, make, make it a tiny bit less stressful for someone whose living room just got blown a block away or there's got to be something we can do Mm -hmm. to to just improve that experience well I, i mean i guess one question i have right away is someone who observed let's say a katrina from afar is you know it it you know i followed in the news and everything seemed to come down to fema and how fema was being managed or mismanaged during uh, W's administration, and um, you know that it seemed like it was all about what the federal government could or could not deliver, and what it, it should have been prepared to, and and what it wasn't. Um, is is that the kind of design that you're talking about? Like, are there designers at a place like FEMA, or are you talking about the response that designers can have through other channels? Well, I think it's both. I have less less experience with that sort of big, huge, we're talking billions of dollars. Like this is sort of a machine with very big, very slow moving wheels. And let me tell you, the people on the ground who were interacting with FEMA by and large had a bad experience. It was confusing. Their website crashed all the time. I had an experience when I was in New Orleans in 2006 and I was checking out at the grocery store, right? And there's just like crazy long line. It's just like a mess. And nearly every cashier, I think like six of the eight cashiers were on the phone. And at the time it was before Bluetooth was really a thing. And so everyone had their like, like phone in the crook of their neck and every single cashier was on hold with FEMA. And you had to do it at work. 
because you were on hold for six hours. Mm. And it's that type of experience where I'm like, they're on hold with FEMA because their house flooded and they're living in a trailer, but they haven't got the keys to the trailer. And so they're camping in a tent outside of the trailer that's in front of their flooded house. And they're on hold for six hours while they're at work bagging groceries to try. Like, this is terrible. There's got to be something that we can do to make this better. So what can we do? Well, I think at the FEMA level, I think there's lots of um, sort of expectations that I would have of folks who are executing this type of disaster relief. Obviously, Hurricane Katrina was an exceptional event. Um, FEMA does respond to more, um, talking about acute disasters here, right? but it's more routine. Like every year, FEMA responds to something, and so there's ways that they can improve those processes. What I do want to talk about today is what we as individual designers can do on the ground. Because sometimes, you know, we're not necessarily gonna stand up and like tell FEMA that they should have a UX department. Like that feels like a bit of a heavy lift. But if, um, I don't know, if a neighborhood floods that, that's down the street from us, there are things that we can do that sort of speaking to the title of my talk is not just lifting a shovel. Mm -hmm. I think that there's definitely like, you know, if you're able-bodied and you can do this, there's definitely a place for everyone to support in that way. But as um, systems are stood up, there's lots of ways that I think designers can leverage our unique skills to just improve the experiences and the outcomes that people have um, following a disaster. Um, obviously service design comes to mind, right? Like I can give you an example, right? There's a sort of a grassroots group called Emergency Communities that stood up very fast after Hurricane Katrina. And they had this big tent, right? These big white disaster tents and they were serving food and they had satellite internet and they had clothes and diaper. They would, it was just sort of a place to go where you're like, oh my gosh, you guys have power. This is crazy. <laughs> you know, like very much sort of a beacon in the place. And you walk up and there's, there's like a stuffed kangaroo. And then there's a huge sign that says we use peanut oil in our fryers. And then there's like a very small little sign that says menu here. And then there's, there's welcome in a few different languages. And it's just, it's just a, a mess. Right? Mm -hmm. You show up like, well, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. Like, I feel kind of overwhelmed, right? And so their solution to this is to put a person at the entrance to the tent. And so this person is then going to solve all of these problems that all of this like random <laughs> signage and information has sort of led you to be confused. And then you, then, then you have to speak to a person, which you may or may not want to do, depending on like your current emotional crisis that you're having at that moment. And so to me, right, you're thinking back on that and you're like, okay, well, we, we, there's ways that service designers can inform this quickly, right? Like, hey, let's put things in the right order. Let's get rid of the kangaroo. Let's put the person at the front. Let's, you know, like say food here, one o'clock, it's hot, let's go. You know, something that really would streamline that process. And, and arguably, which is sort of the point of this is get the resources to the people who need it with less stress. Mm -hmm which is really what I think I'm driving at, at all of this is like these folks are in crisis and like there's stuff that they need and let's just make that happen. And so that's an example of how, for example, service designers can make an impact. Do you see, well, yeah, and I agree service design is like a, a, a critical area here. Um, are there other aspects of design that you've seen um, 
maybe surprisingly important, not ex- not expecting, let's say, some aspect of interaction design or, or some other area that, that's come up in your in your work? Yeah, so I can give you another example about um, data and research and organization. So coming from a research place, um, I'm always interested in making sure that we're sort of asking the right questions. And uh, a lot of my experience is rooted in Katrina and, and this example is too, but I think it has, it's, it's applicable to other situations as well. Um, so when we initially sort of started the work that we were doing, and I, I did sort of physical labor for a year after Katrina, in addition to sort of leveraging some of these skills and, and building up systems. Um, so what we were doing is we were basically gutting houses, right? We were using mm-hmm. actual shovels and we were shoveling out people's clothes and toys and photo albums and right, heartbreaking. And the process of folks getting in touch with us was largely word of mouth, um, leveraged through a lot of houses of worship. And so we were getting like some churches being like, hey, here are some old parishioners. Can you go and help them clean our house so that they don't get cited by the city so that it doesn't get demolished so that they can mold remediate so that they can find maybe their wedding ring, which they dropped during evacuation, Mm. things like that. So we initially, you know, it was a handful of us with a pickup truck and we literally were scribbling this on like a napkin or like a piece of paper. We were just like throwing it. There was like cup holders full of pieces of paper of all of this stuff, right? Wow. And what we found is we ended, we were asking the wrong questions, right? We were asking for their address and we were asking, you know, like, okay, how deep was the water? Things like that. That wasn't what we needed to know because ultimately, you know, there's 200,000 houses that flooded and there was a handful of us. And so as the demand grew, didn't really matter what the address was. What we needed to know is if that person was about to have their house be demolished by the city. If that person was, I don't know, like feeling really depressed, feeling suicidal. Is their grandmother like freaking out about finding something? Like there's some human component there that we weren't asking the right questions about, right? And so then it's not formal research, but it, it's participatory research where you're saying, no, this isn't right. We need to, we need to relook at the way that we're examining this data and, the, and these people. And so we develop anyway, increasingly optimized forms mm-hmm. and the forms helped us triage better. And then the forms we started organizing. And at the time, Google docs was the thing. <laughs> and so we were leveraging that platform and we were putting in our data and we named it the file because that's all we had was a file. <laughs> and um, and it really made it made a difference for us in terms of um, uh, optimizing those services. And five years later, I got a call from the FBI. And the FBI said, um, we're speaking to a woman who, who a contractor billed the city of New Orleans to, to gut her house and clean it. But she insists that a nice group of young people did it for her and she had your number saved in her phone and she wouldn't shut up about it. And so like, do you remember this house? And at the time I had cleaned like 400 houses, right? But I've, I, this Google Doc still exists. We retained it. We had good data. It was well organized. It was put together, right? And I, so I showed it to these folks that they were just, 
sort of beside themselves, right? Because it was this long list of addresses, a couple hundred, like four or 500 houses. And they had the list of addresses that this contractor was billing FEMA for. And there was dozens of overlaps. And we had photos and we had like, I mean, we remembered the people. We knew the names of the homeowners. We could tell them everything. And anyway, this organizing our data in this way contributed to this contractor settling and returning millions of dollars to the city of New Orleans. And if, if it hadn't been organized in that way, they, they would have gotten away with it. We would have had less money to put in, into our city and less resources for our people. Well, that, that's heroic. And uh, it, it, it certainly warms this information architect's heart to, to hear that particular story. I know you've got some more stories. We're going to save them for after the break. You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review, and we are talking disaster with Emily Danielson. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Lou, and I want to put in a plug for a very special experience that Rosenfeld Media is uh, putting on. It's the Design at Scale 2022 conference. It's taking place June 8th through 10th, and it will be 100% virtual. Why are we doing this conference? Well, first of all, it's the latest edition of a conference that's taken a lot of different shapes. Uh, over the last seven or so years. It was the Enterprise UX conference for a while, then it was Enterprise Experience. In the last couple of years, Design at Scale. Uh, this year in particular, we are looking back at the last couple fun years we've all been having, uh, taking the lessons, looking at some of the challenges, pulling together and distilling what we've learned and using what those lessons are to help map a, a path forward. So look at this conference in a way, if you work in a large organization as a designer or a researcher, what have you, as an opportunity to reflect and then pivot and take what we are covering in these three days and arm yourself to move forward. That's what Design at Scale is gonna be about. Uh, if you wanna know the themes, the first one, we have a whole day on this, is design practices in times of crisis. The second day is all dedicated to design processes for a new normal. And the third day, the third theme is design people caring for individuals and teams. If this sounds up your alley, come to the website, designatscale.co, check out the program. I think you'll be impressed. And again, we do virtual really well. I think you'll enjoy the experience. I hope we'll see you June 8th through 10th at Design at Scale 2022. Welcome back to the Rosenfeld Review. We are talking with Emily Danielson, a UX researcher who is doing some amazing work at the intersection of design and disaster. And um, you, Emily, you talked about uh, Katrina. I know you've looked at and, and been involved in many different uh, response efforts to, to a variety of disasters. And I, as I hear you talk, I wonder if you are starting to see um, a pattern, a, a shape, dare I say, something of an architecture to what response to disasters typically looks like. Because just hearing these stories, it just makes me think, well, there's probably things that need to be planned for, thought through, designed for in advance, like helping people escape and understanding what the transportation issues involved will be but also 
probably a wave of initial um, uh, uh, caregiving in terms of like helping people uh, be somewhere dry and safe and um, that they actually have safety from each other. I know there were some concerns uh, in, in uh, I think it was at Katrina, it, at the, uh, the stadium in uh, New Orleans. There were a lot of people were, were staying and uh, there was apparently issues of personal safety. I also got to imagine sometimes it's the more mundane but still important stuff like uh, my house has been wiped out and so has my whole neighborhood, including my pharmacy, and I'm on a pres- important prescription medication. What do I do? So like all these things seem to be, um, I would imagine, some sort of pattern, I, I, I would think. Are you seeing something like that? And, and is that structure informing how you do your work? Absolutely. And, you know, there are people who who know more about the sort of anatomy of disasters than I do, but I can sort of speak to the experience that I've seen. Um, so initially, there's there's a period of preparation when when nothing's happening. It's quiet. <laughs> You're fine. Your family's fine. And and people don't use it. <laughs> and so I, I definitely think that there's resources there that could be leveraged. Um, uh, we need to know what to do in advance, how to prepare, things like that. Um, some states will do tax-free holidays for hurricane supplies, but that's really sort of like, okay, but well then what do we buy? <laughs> Give us some- With what some money? That. Um, uh, and then, it, so that's sort of the preparation period. And then there's what I guess I'll call the warning period, right? This is when like we're watching low pressures in the Gulf. This is when we're watching- uh, like storms that could develop. This is when we're, you know, paying attention to um, the utility company, you know, like our, what's going to happen, but we have some sort of advance warning. Um, and then there's a, that, that advance warning also build in a time of decision-making. And I think this is some of the most painful time for folks because we're, there's a huge vacuum of the information that we want and uh, it's not getting to us in the ways that is is consumable. Um, so a lot of people are right staring at weather radar patterns, and we're all like, I don't know what I'm looking at. There's a blob going this. <laughs> like, how do we make these decisions, right? And so I think there's there's something around like decision support or architecture that, mm-hmm. that help us just be better while we're waiting for. Um, government officials to to dictate this. And of course, everyone has their own personal circumstances, right? Like elderly, um, disabled kids, like there's all of these reasons why you might make a different decision than what the sort of top-down government decision would be. Um, And then of course, there's a time of when we're talking about acute disasters, right? The disaster is happening and that is really a period of survival. And I would argue that during this time, everyone just sit tight, right? This is not a time to design. It's not a time to optimize. This is a time to survive and move through it. And then the there's the immediate aftermath, which is um, primarily the role of first responders, um, paramedics, fire, right? Getting people to a place where they have basic needs met. Um, and then we sort of move into uh, the layer of second responders. Um, so I'm lumping first responders in with like utility companies and the guys with chainsaws that clear the streets from the trees and things like that. 
Uh, but then second responders are sort of folks that um, it, we're helping with the relief effort and we're the, we're the ones that are kind of kick, kicking it off, right? So I'll give you an example, the, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Second responders was like the claim mm-hmm. organization that stood up to like, okay, pay people's claims, pay this out that type of thing. And I argue that designers have a role in that in that second responder place. So there's there's the immediate aftermath, the relief, and then we move into recovery. And recovery tends to be longer period, longer term, um, lots of opportunities for improvement, um, and really uh, takes sort of a, a, an overarching approach to address people's like, like systemic needs. Relief is sort of like, do you need a bottle of water? here's a blanket and mm-hmm. recovery is more like, okay, let's try and get your living room back from down the street and back attached to your house. Well, you've just laid it out. And I mean, all those phases have different ways at different levels and intensity that uh, people who are designers and researchers can help. What about um, those of us who are fortunate enough to be away from an acute disaster that's about to or in the middle of happening is there a way we can help remotely absolutely um i think that there's a role for people who are immediately there and there's a role for people who are remote so the most important thing during a disaster and the most important thing arguably in preparation for a disaster is community you need to know your neighbors You need to leverage your network. And I argue that as designers, we have a really exceptional network. Um, You have contributed to this. (laughs) LinkedIn has contributed to this. There's lots of ways that we have, um, we can come together as designers quickly. And so it's leveraging those connections between the people who are on the ground and sort of have an idea that design could be helpful, but don't have internet access. And the people who are maybe in Chicago and are fine, but really care about it and really want to help. And so I want to talk a little bit about sort of the people on the ground and the the importance of contextual work after disaster. And then um, I can sort of elaborate how that could be leveraged by Mm -hmm. someone who's not there. So I'll give you an example um, uh, from the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. So I had worked in fisheries before the spill happened. And so I had a strong community of Um, Fishermen and small businesses um, in southern Louisiana, if you can imagine, further south from New Orleans. Um, And through that process, when when the oil spill happened, I was able to leverage that community and those folks immediately to sort of better understand the response. And um, through my professional network, uh, secured some funding to try and assist folks with the claims process. So there's a claims company set up to try and compensate people for lost income um, as a result of the oil spill. And a lot of folks uh, spend their days on boats and don't necessarily spend their days filling out paperwork (laughs) and uh, faxing things, (laughs) that was was a requirement. Um, And so it it was part of my role to sort of help support that. And our funder was pretty adamant we need an app. Apps are the thing. Let's do it. It's 2010. Let's app our way out of this. <laughs> and, you know, I was a little, little novice at the time, maybe a little bit insecure. And so I was like, sure, let's, let's build it and check it out at least. Right. So I, at least I had that sort of research stop. Yeah. Should have done it first. Lesson learned. And so we, we sort of roughed up this thing. We wireframed, it got it sort of working a little bit. And I called a friend of mine. I was like, Hey, I want to check this out. Like, do you have some time? And he's like, 
look, I'm really busy, but I'm working the disaster relief. So I'm going to be out like checking out the environment, like shrimping, whatever. It wasn't like getting the oil off, but it was, you know, um, out on the water. He was like, I'm leaving at nine o'clock. And I was like, nine o'clock at night. Mm. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> He's like, you can come, we'll do it then. So I, I drove out, got on the boat, you know, helped him with the work for as long as need be. And then sort of two o'clock in the morning, there was a bit of a lull. And I, I was like, Hey, you mind pulling up your phone? Let's check out this app. I just want to see how it's working. And he's like, Oh, we don't get, we don't get data coverage out here. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, well, cool. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> I like, I'm like, okay, let's walk through this offline copy. Like, let's just see how this works. And he's like, well, the only thing that I'm looking for is a phone number that someone picks up, right? That isn't the six hour hold line. That isn't this. And so I'm, I'm thinking about this. He's like, well, I would just call you speaking to the importance of community. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, ah, all right, <laughs> lesson learned. This is right. And then, so we went through the process. We reported back to the funder. They wanted to build it. It was downloaded. This app was downloaded. I don't know, 55, 60 times total. Everyone was just looking for a phone number and ultimately it really led to the importance of, of contextual research. Long story short, right? That's, that's what it's like being on the ground. You learn, you get on the boat, you realize they're not going to use an app. They just want a phone number. Like, great. It's the responsibility of those folks on the ground, not to do the work of, okay, finding the right phone number, um, potentially building an app if that is what what needs to happen, sort of optimizing some of this stuff. It's their responsibility to get the information to people mm-hmm. who have air conditioning, whose grocery stores sell lettuce, <laughs> who's, you know, like who can go get stitches at somewhere other than an old Lord and Taylor's. Like that's their role. And I think it's the folks who are on the ground who are deeply impacted, communicating that research and that information up and then those folks building something thoughtfully, right? You're like less stressed and less panicked. And so you can sort of relax and think through, how am I gonna architect this? What's gonna be best based on the information that I have? And then send it back for testing. Wow, that's really quite a story. Um, I just, I'm really pretty blown away. And I'm just, I also love this picture of you sitting in the boat late at night. doing your research um if one one more question for you um i imagine a lot of people listening want to help and some may in the case of disasters some may even want to make this their calling you might have uh uh, converted some people uh during this podcast that wouldn't that be amazing um other than finding yourself unfortunately in the middle of a disaster and having to respond, uh, you know, in the moment, what, how can designers who want to get involved in this area and, and help uh, with disaster preparation, and of course, when it's happening in the response, how can we get involved? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So um, right now, I feel like at least in Houston, other parts of the Southern US, we're in that preparation phase, right? Where we're leveraging ourselves and our communities, getting ready for whatever could happen. Um, COVID aside, right? That's a whole nother disaster that we're in the middle of. But um, And so I'd like to sort of leave your listeners with this concept of mutual aid. 
So mutual aid is the process of um, collaborating and sharing resources across a community um, in order to get everyone's needs met. Uh, this has very little to do with money, which I think is different from sort of what we talked about earlier with FEMA and, and even the claims process from Deepwater Horizon, like that's very top down, here's some money. And this is more like we have the resources and skills together um, to support each other. And I think that's such a great opportunity for designers to get involved. And it's also an incredible opportunity for information. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what we need to do if we're not in, in a place is to have relationships with organizations and community members who will know what people need immediately and to have their phone numbers. And for them to text us, here's a picture of something that's happening and it's terrible, or to send us the link to a list, this happened after Hurricane Ida, there's a list of street closures. It's just text. This intersection is closed. This intersection is closed. There's a tree on this intersection and it's 200 lines long. Like send us that, that link and we'll make a map for you. <laughs> or at least throw a few carriage returns uh, in. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I think really like Examining mutual aid, there's there's an organization called um, Mutual Aid Disaster Relief. Um, it's national, and there's a ton of local organizations under that umbrella. If you are interested in mutual aid in your own community, it's a great place to start. Unfortunately, no community is isolated from the potential of future disasters. If there's a, a place that you've been that you're really interested in, starting out with mutual aid, I promise, will not make you money, but will make the biggest impact. And so that's where I think that folks should start um, right now in our preparation phase. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for great stories and more importantly, just the great work that you're doing. Emily Danielson, uh, wow. Uh, I can't wait for your talk. I'm going to read that title one more time because I think it's so awesome. I mean, I can lift a shovel, colon, <laughs> design skills in disaster response. She's going to be giving that talk uh, at the Design at Scale 2022 conference, which takes place virtually June 8th through 10th. Uh, I said it before, and I will say it again with pride, we do a damn good job with the virtual conference. So if you're a bit of a skeptic still in this day, and by the way, this day is already April 2022, two and a half years practically into the, into the pandemic, if you're still lukewarm on virtual conferences, you should really try this one out. Also because the program is so freaking amazing and emily's part of it thanks again emily can't wait for your talk we'll see you in june my pleasure thanks for listening to the rosenfeld review brought to you by rosenfeld media if you like our show please subscribe and review it on itunes stitcher or your favorite podcast platform i'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen and check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people you'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com <laughs>